Hello and welcome to the Contrarian Podcast with your host Rohan Shivalkar. Hope that everyone is keeping safe and looking forward to coming out of national lockdown next week. And for those of you that will be in tier three, my thoughts and prayers go out to you. So right into the topic of this episode, the million or should I say billion dollar question. Should we eat the rich? A hashtag or slogan that you might have seen on social media or during political rallies. On TikTok alone, the Eat the Rich hashtag has gained over 185 million views. But what does it mean and where does it come from? Let's set the scene. The 1789 French Revolution and the subsequent storming of the Bastille Fortress led to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen being passed by the National Assembly as well as the execution of the incumbent king. Such circumstances were brought about by stark levels of poverty a brutal famine and mass disenfranchisement amongst the population. Despite the fact that people were enjoying more rights and freedoms under a more equitable government, there still wasn't enough food to go around. Citizens complained that speculative merchants were selling mouldy bread, adulterated wine and diseased, blood-bloated meat to the poor, saving the best for the wealthy. The spirit of the era can be captured with a quote by the famous social theorist Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He emphatically exclaimed that, When the people shall have nothing more to eat, they will eat the rich. There's probably never a bad time to be a billionaire, but this, at least, is an especially complicated one. Across politics, technology and popular culture, the wisdom and purpose of the extremely wealthy is being questioned as never before. So eat the rich, they say. But wait a minute. I'm also trying to get rich. Does that make me a capitalist? Should I get eaten too? Oh, you meant the ultra-rich, the billionaires. But there you are waiting for your next day Amazon delivery. As much as you can shout that capitalism is bad, there you are benefiting from the same evil. To some extent, we are all complicit. To truly have a productive conversation, we need to delve deeper between the lines and critically evaluate what on earth is going on. In the West, we have practiced a social model that is billionaire friendly first, allowing people to run companies by making as much money as possible by cutting every single social corner, whether that's by paying workers as little as possible or by paying the lowest amount of taxes possible, using tax havens and trust funds to manoeuvre their way out of paying society what they owe. We have been told that the best version of society is achieved by simply leaving entrepreneurs alone. If you do this, all other good things will follow. The wealth gap between the richest and poorest families has been increasing, And since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, Jeff Bezos alone has gained over 23 billion US dollars. Meanwhile, thousands have died and millions have lost their jobs, with those under the poverty line suffering from higher mortality and unemployment rates. The phrase, eat the rich, has re-emerged in progressive circles and as a response to the ongoing dynamics. As the costs of the coronavirus pandemic grow, a fierce debate is gathering pace over how the UK will pay for the measures to counter COVID-19. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has many options, but in terms of controversy, one radical idea stands out the most, a wealth tax. Advocates argue that a tax on assets would reduce inequality, shore up public finances, and ensure that those with the broadest shoulders carry the greatest financial load. However, opponents believe that it would unfairly penalise savers be horribly complicated and expensive to implement, discouraging entrepreneurs and driving wealthy people out the UK. Opinion polls indicate a general public backing for wealth taxes. But, as they say, the devil is in the detail. Support is typically predicated on exempting key assets held by a large percentage of the population, including the main home and pensions. 
In other words, most supporters, rather unsurprisingly, prefer taxes that will hit people richer than themselves. Philip Hammond, the former UK Chancellor, has said that government borrowing will take the lion's share of the debt burden until after the next general election in 2024, which will be supplemented by some token increases in what he calls the hated groups, corporations and rich people. In his words, a windfall tax is almost inevitable. If anybody has done well out of this crisis, they can expect to be taxed on their gains. According to the independent think tank, the Resolution Foundation, the government should raise corporation tax from 19% to 22%. This is to prevent any post-pandemic recovery being funded by spending cuts and more austerity. Additionally, it reckons a council tax increase of 1% on properties worth over £2 million will help the government raise over £1 billion. The Institute for Fiscal Studies says £40 billion needs to be found to balance the UK's books after borrowing spiralled to record highs during the coronavirus pandemic. Philip Hammond's comments come after the UK government's own Office for Tax Simplification suggesting increasing capital gains tax, which is imposed on anybody selling shares, second homes or other assets. Currently, capital gains tax is counterintuitive and some argue that it should instead be brought into line with income tax, which would mean tripling the number of people currently paying it. At the moment, only 20% of the UK's highest earners pay capital gains tax. But by lowering the tax bracket, this could help raise an extra £18 billion a year. Rishi Sunak commissioned the review into capital gains tax in July. However, he is not bound by its recommendations and many in his own party would object to such changes. Wealth taxes have been a long thorny issue in UK politics, having been traditionally championed by the left. Previous Labour government manifestos have outlined taxes on large mansions and gardens. With the rich now more mobile than ever, many worry that they will flee the UK should higher taxes be imposed on their wealth. This would make any increases to capital gains tax counterintuitive as some of the highest taxpayers would leave. Last year, when the Labour Party ran its election campaign calling for higher corporation and income taxes, many UK billionaires made plans to leave the country. Two-fifths of the capital gains tax already come from those making over £5 million annually. In this respect, the UK still needs to retain its attractiveness to international capital, and this means that not only taxing the rich for the cost of the pandemic. In the US, Bernie Sanders proposed his own version of a wealth tax that would collect, according to estimates, around $4 trillion over a 10-year period. But here's the big question. Would the proposals, elegant in theory, work in practice? Lawyers and advisors to the wealthy say there's no way the wealth taxes would collect anything close to these estimates. And they cite plenty of evidence for the fact that tax can be reduced or eliminated through extensive and sometimes aggressive strategies. Name a tax and there's a way to reduce it, delay it, or really never pay it, if you have the right advisor. Don't want to pay capital gains tax? Well, you can decide when you want to sell those investments. If you need the money, you can borrow against the account and leave the capital gains taxes for another day. And if you die still holding these securities, your heirs will get them with any tax on the capital gains erased. If it's a big income year and your tax bill is going to be huge, you can always put next year's worth of charitable giving into a donor-advised fund. The tax write-off is yours today, but you can make donations whenever you feel like it, or leave it to your children to decide. The list of ways the wealthy can reduce their taxes goes on. The tax most similar to a wealth tax 
is the estate slash inheritance tax, which values your entire estate and taxes it. Would an annual tax on wealth targeted at the same people who use the best tax advisors to reduce their estate tax somehow be free of loopholes? With the wealth tax, there are plenty of people who can access top-tier advisors and come up with creative ways to avoid it. The senator's proposed wealth tax seems straightforward, with the rates rising as wealth rises. Sanders' plan is graduated, much like income tax. It starts at 2% for assets over 32 million US dollars and hits a maximum of 8% over 10 billion dollars. In addition to raising revenue, the senator is aiming to use his plans to reduce income equality. Several calculations show how much less wealth billionaires would have if this tax had been enacted in the 1980s. Bill Gates' wealth would be around one-seventh of what it is today, while Jeff Bezos' fortune would be about a third. Both, however, would still be billionaires. So how would those who want to impose a wealth tax value a person's wealth? Take a commercial building, which has a fixed value only when it's sold. Since a property is not being sold, there needs to be some sort of estimate of its value. What the property's appraiser say it's worth and what the tax authority's auditor says it's worth aren't always the same. However, some suggest that around 70-80% to of the wealth of the 0.001% is listed in securities, which have a daily market value. Furthermore, property like jewellery and art can be valued through an insurance policy, and that insurance companies would report these values to tax authorities. However, tax advisors have said that any attempt to use insurance values for taxation would be challenged in court. The insured value of a piece of jewellery is what it would cost to replace if it had been stolen. This is generally much higher than what the actual piece of jewellery is worth. Professor Zuckman, Associate Professor of Economics at UC Berkeley, has an unorthodox solution for individuals who can't assign a value to their ownership stake in a private company or who claim that they don't have sufficient liquid assets to pay the wealth tax. They could pay the tax with shares, which the government would sell to determine their value. The idea is not for the government to become a shareholder in a private business, he said. It's for the government to immediately sell the shares and create the market that is missing. The issues that opponents to a wealth tax frequently raise is regarding fairness. After all, the person with real estate holdings or a private business is relying on someone else to value it, while the person with easier-to-value assets like securities is paying the exact amount. Would it be fair to make people with liquid assets to pay accurately and the non-liquid people to pay an estimate? In reality, the non-liquid estimate would be far lower. In practice, many proposals for wealth taxes are impractical to implement and would serve to undermine the principles of a democratic society. More than a dozen European countries used to have wealth taxes, but nearly all of these countries have repealed them, including Austria, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Sweden. Wealth taxes only survive in Norway, Spain, Switzerland and, in a limited way, on real estate, Belgium and France. So, the sort of eat-the-rich wealth taxes are not something that many consider to be productive. Now to address the notion that billionaires are charitable. There's no question that individuals giving to worthy causes provides important relief from the government's failure to promote justice and well-being. Yet, since wealthy foundations such as the Gates Foundation and the Gates Trust hold assets that surpass many countries, there is a reason to be concerned about the political significance of large-scale philanthropy. Large-scale philanthropy 
is an exercise of power that is fundamentally undemocratic. Since charitable giving brings tax benefits, large-scale philanthropy can undermine the people's will in favour of the donor's own values. In effect, taxpayers subsidise the freedom of the rich to realise their own vision of what is good, while simultaneously depriving democratically chosen programmes of valuable public funds. The structure of philanthropy around the world is increasingly a manifestation of plutocracy, government by the wealthy. Rewarding large-scale philanthropy through tax relief and other subsidies gives the rich even more power than their wealth already provides to create a society that furthers their interest at the expense of others. In fact, the decline of democracy and the rise of vast wealth disparities produces a looping effect. Through funding political campaigns and legislative lobbying, along with media management of public opinion, the rich can influence the government to protect the institutions and practices that enable them to accumulate even greater wealth. Wealth begets power and power begets wealth. Not all large-scale philanthropy is the same. Donations to the arts, research, education and poverty relief would seem like more benign forms of generosity. However, we should hesitate before drawing broad conclusions. Let's consider the role of philanthropy in the academic world. With the decline of governmental support, universities rely increasingly on big donors. Science is expensive and the money has to come from somewhere, so research is often paid by the super-rich. But there are serious problems with academic plutocracy. It is difficult to hold the wealthy accountable for ethically questionable actions in any case, and large-scale philanthropy can make them untouchable. For example, the notable academic philanthropist Stephen Schwarzman, CEO of Blackstone, who has an estimated net worth of 19 billion US dollars. He recently gave 350 million US dollars to MIT and 150 million pounds to Oxford. Jeffrey Epstein was a major donor to scientific research and contributed millions to Harvard and MIT. He was also a convicted sex offender, and although he never made it to trial for additional allegations, he was plausibly engaged in long-term sex trafficking. The Koch brothers donate money to universities across the US and are also known for their misinformation campaigns about climate change and the efforts to repeal social security and minimum wage. And the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is responsible for untold human rights violations, including the torture of feminist activists and the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Yet this does not stop universities from accepting donations from the crown prince. Some argue that there is no problem in accepting large donations from the super wealthy because there is no such thing as dirty money or that using bad money for good is the best thing we can do to offset the bad actions that generated it. But burnishing the reputation of donors can prevent them from being held responsible for the crimes that produce their money or legitimise illicit practices through association with prestigious, well-respected institutions like universities. Moreover, gift exchange is reciprocal, whether this is intentional or not. Although gifts do not require immediate compensation, the point of gifts is to create or sustain relationships, and such relationships involve reciprocity of some kind. When academic institutions enter into dependence relationships with bad actors, They are vulnerable to influence in ways that are at odds with the ideals of academic integrity. This has been shown to be the case for Harvard's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Corporations also donate to higher education through sponsored research. This is not exactly philanthropy because there are explicit agreements between researchers and industry that specify the nature of the project and its goals. 
the timing, funding and so on. A substantial portion of scientific research would not be possible without such sponsorships. And there is no doubt that such research is often useful for a variety of applications beyond the intended corporate use. However, even if not philanthropy, such arrangements are at risk of fostering academic plutocracy. Corporations contribute millions to labs in order to promote and guide research that improves their product and enhances their likelihood of making profit. Some would argue that this is an important part of what research universities are for. But what is clear is that this funding model incentivizes research on certain topics and not others, promoting certain ends and not others. Treating universities as places where corporations can outsource their research and development has profound social consequences. Education in the arts, humanities and social sciences allows for a deep reflection on democratic values. It expands our horizons of exposing us to different points of view. It provides historical self-understanding and gives us the skills to communicate creatively across differences. Unlike a corporation, a university is a place that supports the simultaneous pursuit of scientific and critical inquiry. The interaction between different disciplines, including natural and social science, law, medicine, liberal arts and creative arts, promotes objectivity. In short, academic plutocracy undermines democracy and ultimately the pursuit of knowledge. Money will always play a role in determining what science does. The question is whether power ought to lie in the hands of a few rich individuals and corporations or, if not, how should we better organise the collective pursuit of knowledge? Clearly, the wealthy are already in charge, but their philanthropy needs to be checked and the government must more adequately fulfil its responsibilities to the public. In analysing the broader dynamics that have created these bohemoth billionaires, what is the verdict of the system that has brought about these individuals? Good old capitalism. Everywhere I go, I'm within earshot of someone ranting about capitalism, how it's to blame for all of the issues in the world. Inevitably, others will join in and before I realise, I'm in the middle of a capitalism fuck the world up support group. If you give the same reason for every issue, global warming... Capitalism, the financial crisis, capitalism, my auntie's divorce, capitalism. This warrants suspicion about the thoughtfulness of this sentiment. So in this reason, the anti-capitalism attitude has always struck me as lazy thinking. Blaming capitalism is hardly specific enough to identify the deficiency, let alone to work out a well-supported solution. With that being said... In practice, capitalism does indeed have flaws that justify the criticism. One problem in today's capitalism is that competition is increasingly shrinking in its key markets. And this is a big problem. Competition incentivizes producers to get more efficient and reduce prices for consumers. Without competition, you'll end up with bloated monopolies. They may be highly profitable for their owners, but don't serve the public. The idea that capitalism has failed us and that socialism is the answer relies on a cartoonish oversimplification of reality. Current economic arrangements in the developed world involve a complex mix of capitalist market institutions and socialist regulatory and redistributive institutions. If our mixed system is failing many of us, it is highly unlikely that the blame can be assigned exclusively to either its capitalist or socialist components or to the fact that the system is mixed rather than purely one thing or the other. The real debate concerns the structure, balance, integration of elements that make up our political economy. The polarised ideology 
of these wishy-washy rival ideals leaves both the left and right with a dangerous blind spot. It is the case that those on the left need to better appreciate the role of capitalism in producing abundance. So, what do I think? In my opinion, capitalism isn't bad, it's just broken. With that being said, we need to strive to be in a society that incorporates a more responsible manifestation of capitalism. Responsible capitalism is essentially a free market economy with a degree of government regulation to avoid the excesses of inequalities of capitalism. Responsible capitalism would involve an extensive welfare state to protect those who are unemployed or on low incomes. A simple progressive tax system with high earners paying a higher percentage of their income to fund government spending and to create a more equitable society. A government that takes responsibility for areas with substantial positive externalities and social benefits like healthcare, education and public transport. And a willingness to regulate monopolies and protect the rights of workers. Overall, it is in our hands to produce the society that we want and we need to hold the government accountable for this. And increasingly, with allegations of Tory cronyism throughout the government, it leaves us little hope. But we should all strive to be part of the political process. So we started this podcast asking us a question, should we eat the rich? And I guess there's no hard and fast answer. You'll have to do your own research and you might not even have agreed with what I've said. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Contrarian Podcast. I hope you found it insightful. Sometimes I'll be doing these sort of podcasts where I'll be deep diving into some topics by myself and hopefully this was useful for you. Let us know and we'll see you next week for another episode of the Contrarian Podcast. Thank you.